Hello there, welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Uh, I'm going to take a guess, a very small guess here, and say that at least from an Arsal point of view, you're doing all right. I figure you're okay, given the week that we've had. We've had clean sheets. We've had a win in Europe. We had a very good win over Chelsea. Uh, Diego Costa was really, really unhappy. <laughs> I do like the way that that ha-ha sound effect has got a, a thump sound in the middle of it as well, which I guess is kind of what happened to Costa every time he came near Lauren Koscielny or... Uh, Shkodran Mustafi. I mean, I, I take it everybody at this point has seen the video on the timeline of uh, at Terry AFCX. Yeah, you want to check it out. If you haven't seen it already, uh, it's called Costafi versus Diego Costa. I just had to get it up there. Well, the, the video. Uh, so check that out. Uh, Costafi versus Diego Costa. Uh, it's on the timeline, the Twitter timeline of at Terry AFCX. I'm sure if you just put it into Google, it'll come up. And it features the tackling, the challenging, the strength, power and pace of the Arsenal centre halves driving Costa into an ever increasing fury until he gets to the point where you could see at the end in about the last 10 minutes, he literally is like a small child throwing a tantrum. You could see that he would just like to go like smash something or bash something or pull something's hair or scratch them on the neck or bite them or do something that a baby who throws his toys out of a tram, a, a tram, a pram. That would be amazing. Imagine babies just throwing their toys out of trams, uh, cars coming up behind. Anyway, uh, basically, the point is that Chelsea lost. Uh, Mustafi and Koscielny bossed him around that pitch, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing, uh, especially after what happened last season at Stamford Bridge. It was just beautiful, glorious, and wonderful to see him get some of what he deserves. So, yeah, that's been good. Should we do it again? I think I think we should, right? We I mean, is there any good reason why we shouldn't anyone? No. <laughs> so look, that was fun and obviously uh James and I watched uh, that game in New York City uh at the Barley Corn, which is a, a great bar to watch football in, loads of screens, good food, good beer, and uh I'm just about just about beginning to recover from four or five days in, in New York. The last day I was feeling a little bit grim because I'd been out on Thursday night, out on Friday, out on Saturday, out all day Sunday. And by Monday I was feeling just a bit, you know, you know, I can do one night out at my age. I'm old now. Two nights out, maybe on the trumpet. Four? Oh, it's terrible. So I figured because my flight wasn't until nine o'clock, I'd sort of hang around and I went to a bar, as you do, because, you know, what else is there to do in New York? It's not like they have uh, really incredible things to see all over the place or anything like that. But uh, then went out to the airport. By the time I'd had a couple of bourbons, I thought, yeah, I'll be fine. And my plan was to to drink myself to the point where I could take like a sort of over-the-counter sleep aid type thing, get on the plane and just go and sleep all the way to Ireland. And that way I would I'd just wake up, I'd be there and I'd be feeling A-OK. That was not the case. Uh, the sleep part of things didn't come because I got, I think, a little bit too drunk to remember to take the sleep aid type thing. But I did, in my wisdom, pay for a seat where I could at least stretch my legs out. So it wasn't, wasn't the worst in the world. 
but by the time I was picked up at the airport on Tuesday morning, I was feeling, you know, not very good. Not very good at all. But was it worth it? Absolutely. Would I do it again? Yes, but perhaps with a little more moderation. You can still learn. Get to 45 years of age and still learn things and learn things about yourself and how you can do things, right? I say that I would do it like that. Whether I actually would is, a, is another question. But look, it's, um, it's an amazing place if you're ever there to, to watch football. The Arsenal NYC guys, they've got three bars. They've got two. Well, they've got five because I think they've got two in Brooklyn. There's two on 14th Street, the Blind Pig and uh, O'Hanlon's. And then this new one, the Barley Corn. And honestly, it's just great fun. Of course, when you beat Chelsea 3-0 and Diego Costa loses his reason, that makes things a little bit better. Uh, but it's, it's really just fun. So uh, if you're ever over there and you're looking to watch an Arsenal match, uh, check out Arsenal NYC. And they will certainly point you in the right direction. And you will find plenty of Arsenal fans to hang out with and uh, jump around and laugh at Diego Costa when he gets really, really cross. Because Cassiani pushed him over and the referee didn't give him a free kick. And he was really angry. Sorry, going to have to do it again. And, you know, there was a a lot to like about our football uh, against Chelsea. Uh, The psychological barrier, I think, that we've perhaps broken. I know we can perhaps delve a little bit too deeply into things and analyse things a little bit too much. But, you know, uh, we hadn't beaten them for so long. And after losing on the opening day against Liverpool, we we just couldn't lose uh, to another so-called big team in this league. And I think for the team to take a step forward and to feel belief and confidence, I think they really needed that win as much as the fans did. And and perhaps one of the benefits of that, and I know it's still really early in the season, there's a long way to go. Uh, we're just beginning to get into some sort of form. But wins like that and performances like that, they instill a bit of trust and belief in the team with fans that perhaps isn't there or hasn't been there and understandably so uh, to a certain extent uh, you know w- we've been here before and it hasn't gone as well as it should have and we've seen the team struggle maybe over the last 12 18 months and it's hard sometimes to think anything but the worst or it's hard to see how you can how we're going to turn it around and results like that really really help and then of course midweek a result like that against Basel. And again, sure, if you want to qualify it and you want to say it's only Basel, fine. You can do that. But we've been in this position before against teams of similar caliber, teams of perhaps slightly better caliber, sometimes even a little bit worse. And we haven't done exactly what we did uh, to them the other night. The first 45 minutes against Basel was just uh, outstanding. The football was amazing. The chances we created were incredible. The finishing, perhaps not so much. Alexis could have had any number of goals. Ozil could have had a couple of goals. Hector Bellerin could have had a goal. But we were still 2-0 up. Um, should have been more, of course, but 2-0 up through a player who's enjoying uh, a very, very good start to the season, Theo Walcott. We're going to talk about him now uh, in a few minutes' time. But I have to say, I really liked the the desire that he showed to score that first goal. And it's been it's been good to see that from him as well as the end product. I think he's a guy who's got to, he's got to do it all season. He can't just do it for a few weeks when he can do it like this right now, if he can stay injury-free and if he can keep up that focus and motivation 
and hard work and effort, there's no reason why he can't keep doing this between now and the end of the season. Being injury-free, of course, is a, is a big part of that. But if he is injury-free, he can still chase, he can harry, he may not score at the same regularity, but I still think he's a guy who can make a, a very good contribution. Second half, I think we more or less controlled it. They had a couple of chances, we let them back into it a little bit. and It's a shame, I think, that we didn't quite get the third goal, the fourth goal that, that might have killed it off and might have given the manager a chance to make some changes ahead of the, the game on Sunday. I think he might have made a couple of different changes if we'd been if we'd been more goals to the good. There you go. But, you know, what a really positive week. And after that opening day of the season, after that game against PSG, particularly the first half against PSG, where it looked like, oh my God, what is, what is this team about? What are they doing? They look to have found a bit of rhythm. Uh, they look to have found some form, some confidence. Um, and it's great to see. And it's great to watch Arsenal play that kind of football because you haven't seen it enough. Um, and I'm not necessarily a, a, always a style or a substance guy. I mean, I think you can grind out results, but I think um, Arsene Wenger's teams operate best when they play with that bit of panache and with that bit of uh, verve and, uh, dare we say, joie de vivre. I don't know if we do. I just did. But it, it's really encouraging. That's where I'm going with this. We don't have answers to all the questions yet. There's a lot still to prove, etc., etc. But the signs are far more encouraging now than they were a few weeks ago. And I think that's uh, obviously a very positive thing. So look, um, what we're going to do now is talk to our guest this week. No, hang on. Just one more. Indulge me, right? And, and you know, just so I'm really clear here, every time I put one of those in, I'm, I'm laughing at Diego Costa. Just... Just so we're absolute, there's no, no gray area here, right? Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, time now to discuss uh, all the bits that have been going on and more with my guest. Uh, delighted to welcome back to the show. He was with the Times, but now he's the chief soccer correspondent with the New York Times, Rory Smith. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you very much on both counts. Very kind of you. Um, everyone looks at what Arsene Wenger does in the transfer market uh, with, with really uh, strong eyes. Do, do you have any idea where they found this uh, Theo Walcott kid from? No, he's, he's interesting that he's, he's obviously come through, he's almost risen, risen out, of, out of nowhere, hasn't he, this Theo Walcott? I've never heard of him before. Um, he's, he, do, he does have these patches, Theo, doesn't he, where he's, he kind of, you want to think, right, this is it, he's finally made that breakthrough. And then whether it's an injury or whether he kind of gets rotated out and then kind of can't quite reclaim his place, it never quite seems to happen. I, I, I really like Theo Walcott as a, as a bloke as much as as a player. I think he's, he is genuinely a lovely fella. And it would be really nice if he could have that kind of, not break, not quite a breakout season, but mm. that season where he finally says, right, this is what I do. And it looks after the last sort of two or three games as though that might be about to happen. But with Theo, I think we've probably all learned, Arsenal fans more than anybody, not to count your chickens before they're patched. Yeah. I mean, what did you make of the comments where he said he, he sat down with Arsene Wenger and they had a talk about... Um, what he needed to do and he said certain things was like a, almost like a light bulb going off that he had to do this and he had to do that and you know this is a guy who's 27 years of age he's not a, a kid you know he's a very senior professional player he's played 350 games for Arsenal I mean how much of that was him just talking off the top of his head at a press conference and, or how much of that is actually 
what what he thought. I mean, he was he spent the summer sort of posting these videos on on Instagram of him doing extra training, uh, working on his upper body strength, and those sort of things. So there, it seems like there is an element of him going, okay, I've I've had to reassess here and 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 try harder. And I think we're seeing that in terms of a his availability and b his performances. Yeah, I would imagine that that's right. I, I wonder whether you, you're quite right that a 27-year-old player who's been around for as long as Theo has shouldn't be needing to sit down with his manager and his manager say, right, these are the things you've got to do. That You'd presume those conversations, A, would have happened quite a long time ago anyway, and B, would now be seen to be a little bit kind of surplus requirements. I think the thing with Theo is that he's, he's kind of been confused about what he wants to be for quite a long time, and I think that's probably held him back as has the fact that we still treat him, certainly in Britain, kind of like he's a kid. Mm. And you think of Theo Walcott as being, he'll be like 34, and people <laughs> will still be saying, you know, this Theo Walcott, it's huge potential. <laughs> and I think the fact that he's, he's 27, this sounds really stupid, but it's probably caught quite a lot of people by surprise. And I wonder whether, because what Wenger knew him for so long as a young player, I wonder whether there's a slight, I don't, this, is, this is very much a rhetorical question, mm. um, whether there is, whether that's influenced the relationship between them a little bit, whether they've never quite got out of the fact that Theo was the coming thing rather than the thing that had arrived. Yeah. And so maybe Vendor takes a more kind of paternal approach, I guess, to his, to his relationship with Theo than he would with, you know, if he went and signed, as you say, if he went and signed a 27-year-old forward, he wouldn't, he wouldn't give him particular attention, wouldn't feel the need necessarily to sit down with him and say, this is what you've got to do. But I do think with Theo, because of that whole kind of, he had, what, four or five years where he was absolutely determined he was a number nine and he he took it as a, a kind of slight almost that he wasn't being played as a number nine. Yeah. And it, it strikes me that Vendor's maybe gone back to him and said, look, this is where you get in the team, playing as, kind of this, as part of this fluid front, front three and this is what you need to, to make a success of that. So there has probably been a slight tactical shift to his exact position. and Maybe the conversation was more like that. Mm. But, if Theo has decided, I'm just going to do what Arsene Wenger tells me to do, and that will get me into the team, then that's probably progress. Because for a long time, it did feel as though he was being held back by his desire to be something that he was not, or was not being given the chance to be. Yeah, and then when he did get the chance, it didn't didn't really work out, and it didn't feel like it was something that was even tried for a particularly long period of time. But it was interesting pre-season, Arsene Wenger saying, well, no, I don't really fancy Theo Walcott on the right, but maybe what we're looking at in terms of the way Arsenal are playing at the moment is, is he's not quite necessarily a right winger in the way that he was in the first years uh, at the club. Um, and the the presence of Alexis Sanchez, perhaps, in the centre-forward position allows him a little bit more freedom to move into dangerous positions. So we saw against Chelsea, for example, Theo Walcott, who's uh, playing on the right-hand side ostensibly, pops up in the centre-forward position, classic centre-forward position, to, to score Arsenal's second goal. Yeah, and his first goal against Barcelona as well, which was a, yeah. a run from deep. Yeah. In a kind of, I mean, I guess kind of a number 10 run almost, or sort of maybe a Stoll's number 10 run, mm. late into the box. And uh, on the radio, they said they bisected, he bisected all three central defenders. I don't think you can bisect three things. <laughs> I think you can only bisect two. But anyway, yeah, that was, that was a kind of, that was another central goal. I think that's much more modern. And a lot of the debate about Mourinho before United beat Leicester and kind of his style of football, there was speaking to people, and again, it's only a theory, but you wonder whether one of the problem that, problems Mourinho has is that his, the way he sees football is very effective 
but it's t- kind of mechanized. It's very much kind of, you are in these positions, these are your exact roles. Mm. Whereas slightly more forward-thinking coaches, Guardiola, Klopp, people like that, the new Tuchel, the new kind of generation of coaches, they see Pochettino, not a particularly popular name on the art cast, but nevertheless <laughs> a sort of forward-thinking coach. They see football as being a little bit more expressive, especially in the final third, that they, they want a bit more fluidity, a bit more spontaneity. And I think shifting Sanchez into that sort of theoretical striker's position has probably given Arsenal a bit of that that they didn't have necessarily in previous years, particularly when Giroud was playing this kind of as a, kind of a, as a fixed point up front. Mm. That's not to say Giroud's a bad player. So he's not. He's a streaky player, but he's not a bad player. But when you've got, you know, Iwobi, Ozil, Sanchez, Walcott, say, as your front four, switching around positions, each of them able to play in each of those positions, that gives you a lot more fluidity and a lot more unpredictability, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And that seems to be the, the, the modern calling card. If you look at City, that's what they do. You know, Aguero and Silva, Sterling, Nolito, they all kind of switch around. You can never tell exactly where each of them is playing. There's no kind of fixed position. Mm-hmm. Arsenal have that. And that, that may well be the solution to the kind of Walcott conundrum that we've been battling with since 1574, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you talk about expressive coaches and Wenger is certainly one of those who wants his players to to go out and express their talent or, or feel like they can express their talent. And perhaps that was the downfall during the years when players needed a little bit more guidance as to what their roles were on the pitch precisely. Uh, that, that certain players of, of potential didn't quite reach that. But it is very interesting because you talk about Olivier Giroud uh, who's been the mainstay at Arsenal for the best part of four seasons. You know, he got into the team when Van Persie left and he stayed there despite Arsene Wenger's efforts to try and find another player. And it is um, it is quite obvious how Arsenal are going to play when he's in the team. When it works and when it clicks, he's, um, he's very effective and Arsenal can be very effective around him, but it feels... Like with this new system, as you say, when all these guys can move around, Mesut Ozil scored a very similar goal to the one that Theo Walcott scored. Yeah. Uh, he scored that goal against, uh, it was against Watford. Theo scored the goal against Basel. A run from deep where Sanchez, uh, who's the centre forward, apparently, is out on the left-hand side flinging in a cross. So it, it has added a, uh, something different to, to the way that Arsenal can attack. Yeah, I think, and I know what you mean about Wenger and and being a coach who wants his players to express themselves. And he, without question, that's true. And probably for a long time, that was both a benefit and a curse for Arsenal, mm. that kind of desire for that freedom. But he's also, I think, a coach, I don't know if I can phrase this articulately enough, which suggests that it's not a fully formed thought, but he's also a coach who really likes patterns. Mm. That's what he seems to, particularly in that kind of like middle era Wenger, the, the team, the young team. And I agree with you completely on that, that when you've got a team full of, like teenagers and 22-year-olds, they need a lot more direction in terms of fixed positions because they don't have the experience to switch around that Ozil and Sanchez did. But I think Wenger liked the idea of that sort of possession football, thoughtful football, patterned football, mm. which, like Mourinho's vision of football, which is not nearly as beautiful, but is, is similarly kind of structured, has been overtaken a little bit by a little bit more virtuosity particularly up front, that that seems to be the modern trend towards, say, if you watch Liverpool this year, there's a lot of, they sort of kind of get to the final third, you know, sort of 30, 40 yards out from goal. And there's quite a lot of kind of 
freewheeling running. There's little darts here and there. Lalana, who isn't the world's greatest footballer, lovely touch, but not, not a great footballer, but he moves really well, doing unexpected things and turning up in unexpected areas. And that, I think, is, it, that's come out of Germany, that, that thinking. Just Barcelona, for all that they're very beautiful and very effective, don't do that quite so much. And I wonder whether Wenger's almost incorporated that a little bit into his game, whether he's maybe looked at something like Thomas Tuchel's Borussia Dortmund and thought, that's something that we don't have enough of. We need mm. a little bit more kind of darting, unexpected movement in the final third. And so he's, he's decided that with Giroud, you can play a really, a really attractive, patterned game. But once you remove him, you get a little bit, essentially a little bit more chaos almost. Yeah. goal. And the best way to do that is to have someone like Sanchez. I was a bit surprised in, in, the, early, in the early days after Sanchez signed that he didn't try him as, an, as a sort of false nine, as much as I hate that phrase. He didn't try him through the centre a bit more because he can play that role. And I think he grew up playing that role as much yeah. as anything. I mean, he did try him, but he didn't seem to stick with it for no. long enough to see if it would if it would really work. And this is really interesting to, to think that this is a, a leopard perhaps changing his spots that Arsene Wenger's moving with the times. We know like behind the scenes, he's extremely into the idea of, of stats and analytics and looking at, at what players did in, individually and what the team did. And Arsenal have obviously uh, brought this uh, stats company a couple of years ago as well and incorporated a lot of that. But yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it is very interesting to see him uh, work this team in this particular way because last season, one of the big worries that I had was that you couldn't look at this uh, the, the Arsenal team and say, well, that's an Arsene Wenger team. At least you could always see the kind of football that, that Arsenal were trying to play. And last season, it, it just seemed to be a bit, a bit of a mess. There was no real cohesion to it. There was no fluency to it. And you didn't really understand quite what it was that they were trying to do. And he said something during the week. He said, we know now the football that we want to play, which suggests that there is uh, some thinking gone into this. Yeah, I think, he, I think Wenger's had a bit of a... He's held up as like a fundamentalist, Wenger, but I don't, think, I, I don't actually think that's particularly fair. Mm. If you look at the, the, the point, it's a, it's a massive, hackneyed cliche. But the City, or the 2-0 away win at City, whenever that was, a couple of years ago, that was held up as being the kind of the, the turning point for Wenger where he adopted a more tactical approach. And obviously Mourinho made a claim in his... allegedly made a claim in, in his the unauthorised biography about him, that that was Arsenal's players who instituted, instituted that. But mm-hmm. however, however it came about, that seemed to, be, to herald a slightly different approach from Wenger, where he was finally prepared to say, we will go to the big teams and we will curb our natural instincts in favour of kind of stifling them. But I wonder whether as well that, that Wenger, because that was a change in approach, whether that was maybe, that maybe led to a little bit of confused thinking from him from time to time, this is the thing with Arsenal, it's always from time to time. Just for the vast majority of football matches that they play, Arsenal win quite comfortably. But from time to time, I wonder whether he decided that he'd take a little bit more of a tactical approach and it didn't quite work, or he wanted to see something a little bit more, I guess a little bit more kind of constrained from his players. And it, it meant that there was a slight confusion about exactly what they were trying to do and who exactly Arsenal were. Yeah. It does seem in the last... Two or three games since the, since the start of the season, essentially, when, when players have come back to fitness, he's got a full kind of complement, more or less, to choose from, certainly in, in the attacking roles, that he's decided that there is now an identity to this Arsenal. And he's incorporated a little bit more freedom, a little bit more kind of fluidity up front. He's 
taking Giroud out, which for Wenger is a big thing. He's, he's, his biggest flaw, I don't remember who wrote it, it definitely wasn't me, it's far too nice a phrase, but Wenger's biggest strength as a human is probably his biggest flaw as a manager, which is his loyalty. So for him to, to basically say, right, Giroud, Olivier Giroud is now kind of not part of what we see as our best team, that's quite a big thing for Wenger, but it does suggest that he's, he's found a way that he thinks can incorporate all the little different things that, that a modern team needs to compete properly for, for lead titles, which would get me out of the fact that they finished second last year. Yeah. Um, and obviously the way that Arsenal are playing is going to have an effect on somebody like Giroud, who's going to have to like accept this new reality and see if there's a way that he can fit into this team. And you look at the way that the midfield is operating and someone like Aaron Ramsey who's sidelined rather unfortunately through injury is going to have to work really hard to to get himself back into this team as well but you know do you know what funny enough i, I had this conversation with my neighbor's an arsenal fan and I, we had this conversation last night and i i worry a little bit for partly for ramsey i'm not quite sure where he fits in which is a shame because he's a brilliant footballer and it's difficult to be injured and then try and get into a winning team that's really hard but also a lot of the time, teams find their rhythm when there are two or three options unavailable to the manager, mm. because it means they have to look at the resources and think, right, this is what we've got, this is how we're going to go. And obviously it doesn't work if you've got 10 players out through injury, but if, if you've got two or three players who you would normally think about who you can't pick, it makes it much easier in a way to to kind of streamline your thinking as much as anything else. Yeah. And the modern trend is very much for clubs, you know, to carry 20, 25 players. It's not always massively helpful because it, it confuses your thinking. And what was, you were saying about Sanchez as a nine in the first year of, of his time in, in London. And I, you wonder whether that was, if it didn't work out, if there was a game where it didn't really work. Vendor's got three other players who can play in that position. Why would you wait? Why wouldn't you just chop and change it and find something that does work? Yeah. Whereas, so you do wonder whether he's happened upon something because... You know, there's not every single option. Obviously, Wilshire's gone on loan, Ramsey's injured. He's kind of made him think, right, the, the midfield kind of has to look like this, which yeah. means he's going to have to play like this, which means we need this up front. And that might be through kind of accident almost. He's actually found something that, that is a real, a, a more modern, updated version of the way Wenger's always played. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, at the start of the season, I, I was convinced that uh, Alexis as a centre forward was because Giroud was coming back from uh, yeah. the Euros. Uh, Theo Walcott was no longer a striker. Danny Welbeck was out injured. And that was it in terms of Arsenal's forward options because they hadn't brought in Lucas Perez yet. Uh, so I think there was an element of necessity. Um, but, but perhaps also the the knowledge that he's done it before to a certain extent. When he started playing Robin Van Persie as a centre forward, Van Persie was like, I don't know if I can do this. Mm. Uh, but he stuck with him and obviously we saw what happened and he uh, he ended up doing whatever it was that he did uh, very well for Arsenal and obviously uh, Manchester United then after that. Um, so probably a little accident, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B in terms of accident and design. Yeah, exactly, and it's it, that's probably overlooked and when we think of kind of how great coaches or great teams come together. People always, you, you, and journalists are terrible for it. I've done this a million times, but you kind of impose a narrative after the events. You you find a, a storyline to fit the facts. Sure, and things like the fact that you know a player was out injured, as you say, you know the fact that Giroud came back from the Euros. France gets to the to the final of the Euros. So Giroud, Giroud comes back late, which means Wenger has to start the season essentially without him. That means he's got to think of other solutions. Danny Welbeck's still injured. There's all these other little kind of 
bits of good and bad or indifferent luck that that go into forcing a manager to do certain things. And if it clicks, as it's as things sometimes can do, and if you'd said to me at the start of the season, Arsenal's best front four this season could be Mesut Ozil, uh, Alexis Sanchez, Theo Walcott and Alex Iwobi, I'd have said no. That that's nonsense. What what on earth are you talking about? But, but is it, it might be that because of yeah. as you say, just the circumstance, they actually have a set of characteristics that really suit each other. Yeah. I was just gonna say the idea that we're talking about a front four is in itself a bit of a, a different thing. I know that like uh, Urzel has played more or less as a, a number 10 and you've got two two wide midfielders, but he certainly is a guy. And it was really interesting to watch him against Basel uh, on, uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, the number of times that he was playing off the shoulder of the last defender, he was just caught offside a little bit. But... Um, I think it's interesting the way that he's getting into the spaces that, or is prepared to get into the, to the spaces that Alexis is leaving behind. Well, that's the thing. If you're playing a striker or a theoretical striker who is, I mean, Alexis will drop deep, but more more often than not, he kind of likes to drift wide, particularly to that sort of left hand area. That's where Alexis seems to want to 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 play, which is fine. But you need your number ten then to be able to occupy that space, and equally that means that then drags the midfield the midfield up because you've got suddenly a huge area, I guess, in the number 10 area. What do they call it? Box 14 or whatever it is that, they, <laughs> that the analysts talk about. That, that, that that area is unoccupied, which brings your midfield forward, which means you can play much for, much higher up the pitch. So, yeah, it, that, that is Ozil. Who's, Ozil's a wonderful footballer, but part of the fact that he's wonderful is because he's so intelligent. So he will recognise that there is space for him there and he will know that the knock-on effect is positive for Arsenal. So he, he kind of needs to adapt his game a little bit to recognise the fact that he's got Sanchez in, in front of him rather than Giroud, mm. who he would look look to play the ball to, basically to feet, and then you build the play off Giroud, and that was the way that, that he kind of worked for two or three years. Now he has to adapt it slightly. The balls have to be different for Sanchez, which then creates space. And again, you kind of get that... There's a, the, this is a horribly poncy thing to say. There's a really good Spanish word for it, which it translates as desequilibrate, I think, which means to kind of create chaos, essentially. You break the balance of things. And because Sanchez is moving away from his tradi- the position that he's expected to be in, mm. you get this kind of slight moment of chaos. And that's where, that's where stuff happens, because everyone in football now is well-organised and everyone is really well-disciplined and well-drilled and they know exactly where they're meant to be and they've got these... They spend hours and hours and hours working on shape and stuff. So you need those moments. Things happen when things are just out of balance, out of kilter. And that's what Arsenal have been able to do the last few games, is, is especially against Chelsea. Yeah. Is find those moments where Chelsea's... Chelsea probably didn't defend badly for 88 minutes in that game. But in the two minutes, they didn't shift three goals and could have shifted three more. And that's, what you, that's, that's how it works, basically. For a long time, everything is in perfect harmony. And then things break up. And that's what Arsenal have found as a way of creating more of those moments than you do when you have Olivier Giroud there. Which, again, doesn't mean Giroud is a bad player, but it just means he doesn't do that quite as effectively. Yeah, it's very interesting. And obviously, I, I hope, uh, hope it continues along those lines. I just want to move on a bit to talk about Arsene Wenger a little bit because uh, we know it's the 20-year anniversary coming up. The official date is October the 1st, uh, which is uh, Saturday of this week. W- what do you think his legacy is going to be in terms of English football. Obviously, he's a guy whose success, the greatest part of his success came in the first part of his reign. But when, I think when you look back uh, and you step back a bit from it, 
to maintain the level of consistency that he has in terms of the league. And I know not, you know, I've been frustrated with it myself. People have grown overly familiar. I think there's a certain element of familiarity uh, breeding contempt and everything else. But when you step back and and look at that measure of consistency over that period of time, nobody else has really done it apart from maybe Alex Ferguson. Yeah, and even even Fergie probably had a couple of dips that Vendor's not really had. Vendor's not necessarily had the highs that Fergie did. But there were a couple of dips. I mean, obviously, the first four years with Fergie famously were, were kind of a, quite a big dip. Mm. Uh, and then then that then it all started in kind of 90, 1990. I, th- I think his legacy to Arsenal is that he's transformed the club. That's that's fairly obvious that, that what people think of as being, um, as being Arsenal has changed completely, wholeheartedly in Wenger's time there. I remember him... Once I think what I once asked him whether kind of what what he thought Arsenal meant to players, you know, when he goes to sign players, what Arsenal means, and that's something he's really pr- proud of. That there is a sort of there is a defined style. A lot of kids will grow up thinking I want to play for Arsenal, not just in in England, mm. but but across Europe, across the world, because it's a club that has a defined style that not not many teams have. Particularly Manchester United probably have one. Man City, for all their success, for all the fact that they've got great players, I don't think there's anybody growing up in Argentina thinking, do you know what, my game really suits Man City. <laughs> whereas, whereas Arsenal really have one. Like, in the, probably what, Barcelona, Ajax, yeah. is in that, that calibre of club. So I think his legacy to Arsenal, obviously, goes without saying, is, is astonishing. And that's just on the pitch in terms of the structure of the club, all that. He's transformed them. To English football, I think he... he do you know, his main legacy is probably that he single-handedly allowed us to stop saying, oh, I don't know if foreign managers work in, in England. <laughs> That's probably his greatest, the, the greatest thing that he's done for, for English football. Like, there is an English football before Wenger and after Wenger, without, without a shadow of a doubt. And the fact that you know, he won, won the double in his first full season is, is probably the most significant thing he's done, I guess. Mm. There's all the, you know, he obviously invented pasta and sleep. <laughs> uh, he was the first man to, to encounter either of those things. Um, and so there was there were huge changes that he brought in and he made fashionable. He made he set down the template for kind of clubs dominating one market with his knowledge of France. Obviously, in, in sort of late nineties, that's that's something that that changed the landscape again. But really, it's that he did he he stopped he kind of he, he brought light to a country's general ignorance, really, because foreigners up until then had been seen as a kind of a luxury or something you bring in to make the fans happy or you you know you get in Gianluca de Vialli for the last year of his career or sign Fabrizio Ravanelli for a bit yeah but Wenger kind of made it he kind of he laid down the pathway to the future and that that sounds really silly and there'll be a lot of people who who kind of resent that and say oh you know you're not not trading you can't trade on the past and he's not done this this and this for however many years and blah 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 and we know we need someone more Arsenal need someone more I don't know more dynamic younger more kind of adventurous whatever but Wenger did did something that changed the course of English football, really. And I think maybe even more than Ferdy, obviously not as successful as Ferdy, but he probably, in that sense, he probably has had a more lasting lasting impact on English football. Because Ferdy was the Ferdy was the best type. He was the best example of the old sort of vision of the British manager. He, yeah. he kind of took all of the old values of English or British football and perfected them, and that was that was his greatness. Vendor did something different. Vendor changed what those values are. 
And that's that's just as significant and just as influential. All right, listen, um, fantastic stuff as ever, Rory. We better leave it there, though. Uh, we'll catch you again soon, I hope. Thank you. A pleasure. Thanks very much indeed to Rory. You can find him on Twitter now, at Rory Smith, at Rory Smith. Right, what we're going to do is, I don't know what we'll do. Or we're going to do some fan duel now in a while, see if my team can uh, lose even more than it does normally. But maybe you can win some cash. But we'll do this first and then come back. And we'll also look ahead to the game against Burnley. Welcome back to Sky Sports News. The headlines this hour. Diego Costa has been ordered to attend anger management classes by Chelsea after his late-night rampage following the 3-0 defeat to Arsenal last weekend. The striker smashed up a French restaurant in Islington, shouting, I know in our pocket now, Kasselny. Sam Allardyce has asked the press to leave him alone after he fled England for Spain in the wake of his scandal and the loss of his job as England manager. He spoke to paparazzi outside of Big Sam's villa before speeding away in Big Sam's Ferrari and chowing down in Big Sam's hot dog and cheese restaurant that he owns in a town that he's called Big Sam's Town, much to the displeasure of locals. And Jamie Vardy has, for the third time, explained why he turned down a move to Arsenal. The player himself explains. I was sitting at home, right, and the phone rang. And they said, Arsenal's wants to buy you. And I said, what? What are you fucking talking about? I was a bit pissed, you see, because I'd had a load of vodka with Skittles in it. So I said, I better get sobers. And I had seven cans of Red Bulls. I went fucking mentals, didn't I? I went Dan's locals, nights clubs, and there's this bloke there called Big Trevs who's looking at my bird. And I said, Big Trevs, fuck you. And he hit me in the nose. So I went home and I drank about 17 glasses of ports and then I forgot. I was really quite forgets it now because Lester's a bit shit, innit? Yeah. Oh, well. I'll just drink some Skittles Vonkers, yeah! And we've got some breaking news. The FA have appointed Donald Trump as the new England manager. In a statement, they said, we wanted somebody who could say whatever he wanted and it wouldn't make any difference to anything. We'll have more on these stories and the rest of the sports news in the next hour. Okay, let's talk a little bit about FanDuel. FanDuel, one day fantasy football, you win real money. All you have to do is go to fanduel.co.uk and it is only open to people in the UK at this moment in time and sign up. Use the promo code ARSBLOG and you get yourself £10 refunded if you don't win on your first game. You can even play for free by going to fanduel.co.uk and you can win money for free but to win the big money prizes, you've got to put a bit of money into your account and enter and that kind of thing. So this week we're entering the 6K fan favorite. And the team that I picked to no doubt come bottom contains absolutely no Tottenham players. I just can't ever bring myself to select a Tottenham player when it comes to fantasy football. So um, my team is uh, De Gea, McCauley, Matip, Bailey, or is it Bay? Um, Mesut Ozil, Alex Iwobi, Coutinho, Herrera, Batshuayi, Walcott, and Sanchez. 
And in that particular competition, I think it's uh, £5 entry, £6,000 worth of prizes. Top prize there for the winning manager is £600, which is not uh, too bad at all. Then 400 300 and it trickles down. But there are 336 prize-winning positions covering just the games on Saturday and Sunday. You can also get the FanDuel app for Android, or you can get it for uh, iOS. All the details are on the website, fanduel.co.uk. And remember, when you sign up, use the promo code ARSPLOG. And if you don't win on your first try, they will refund you your money up to £10. So there, right. Uh, I'll let you know how I get on. Or if you win something, please let me know. I'd love to know because I'm no good at it. And if you do win, tell me how. I look at the teams and I go, that that looks like, yeah, there's good players that could win. And then, then nothing. No. Anyway. Uh, but look, we've got uh, Premier League action to look ahead to this weekend against Burnley. And an away trip after a Champions League game in midweek is not always easy. Uh, I know Burnley is a team that we would be expected to beat anyway, and particularly in this kind of form. I thought perhaps that he might use the midweek game to rotate things just a little bit. I do wonder now if having, I won't say stumbled, or having discovered this formation that really works and is uh, is playing very well, I wonder if he's reluctant to make changes because it is just working so well. We all want to know about rotation and keeping players fresh and making sure they don't get burned out. But when you see them play like that, it becomes uh, very difficult to make changes, doesn't it? So, um, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see what he does, whether there are a couple of fresh faces in the team to face Burnley. Like, where do you make the changes? The fullbacks are playing great. The centre halves are playing great. The central midfield is operating particularly well. The strikers, the forwards, as we spoke about with Rory, is all working really, really really well. Obviously, Petr Cech, I think, will come back in. But beyond that, I mean, you know, someone like Lucas must be sitting there going, I thought I was going to have to compete with Olivier Giroud for a place in the team. And he was sort of not on the way out, but not everybody's favorite, maybe not the manager's favorite anymore. I could get some game time here. And then all of a sudden, he's looking at Alexis doing what he's doing and going, well, shit, now what? Just has to wait for his chances, I suppose, in the EFL Cup, do some substitute stuff. But uh, maybe this is a game where he could get a run out. I don't know. It's very hard to say. Olivier Giroud does have a toe injury. I'm told that the toe injury is actually a toe injury and not a toe injury. Uh, He's got some bruising. He won't be in the France team uh, or in the France squad for the uh, for the upcoming internationals. Some comments about that from uh, Didier Deschamps, who says uh, the important thing is to have players at 100%, and uh, clearly Giroud is not at 100% uh, at the moment because of this toe injury, which is uh, definitely a toe injury. And, uh, of course, he hasn't really been playing very much since he got back from the European Championships because of the way that the team has uh, has been operating. And you do have to think, like, what's, how how's it going to go for Giroud? This season, how is he going to play a significant part? Because I think he's a good player. I think that he's going to add some qualities to this team at certain times. But if we're operating, if we're using this different, this different way of attacking, he doesn't really fit into that. So is he going to be like a super sub, somebody who comes off the bench or somebody who plays in some of the smaller games uh, who can boss around the center halves? Um, it'll be interesting to see how he responds having been the main man for a long time, uh, and now he's clearly not that anymore, and there's greater competition because Lucas is there and because Danny Welbeck will be back in in the new year as well. 
Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what way he reacts. Um, also out, Aaron Ramsey, he won't be going away with Wales, and that has drawn some, some questions from Wales manager Chris Coleman. He said, we don't know what he does every day at Arsenal. They're a great club, but it's always disappointing to lose a player of his importance. When you look at their history and training, his loading, the games he's played, and you could ask, could that injury have been prevented? Maybe it could have been prevented. That injury he picked up on the opening day. He did complain of a hamstring strain and was still sent out for the second half. But also, he was away with Wales, wasn't he? For the whole summer. He didn't have any rest in the summer. So maybe if you want to dish out some blame, both parties can can take a bit of that. Uh, and then after uh, Burnley on Sunday, we've got an interlull, an international break. World Cup qualifiers and all that kind of stuff going on. So I think it's really important that we go into this game and try and maintain our momentum. It's not going to be tricky. It's another little test, another way of instilling belief and confidence in the team themselves and in the fans that we can we can make sure we don't slip up after a, a midweek Champions League game. And um, what more can you say other than you've got to hope that Arsenal will be able to replicate what they did in the last few games. And you go back to the Forest game as well. That was a, a really good performance. So that's uh, really just about that for this week's Arscast. I think... Oh, no, hang on. No, I... Sorry. I forgot. Forgot something really important. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe I almost got through this podcast without doing this again. Sorry, had to be done. Look, come on, you've got to. Uh, I think we'll have an Arscast Extra on Monday. Uh, James is on holiday, but he has brought his microphone, so we're a bit dependent on what kind of Wi-Fi he can get from the holiday location he's in. But assuming the uh, Wi-Fi is okay, we'll have an Arscast Extra looking back on the Burnley game. If it's not okay, I don't know. I'll figure something out. We've got a whole interlude together to try and figure it out, all right? Uh, so maybe, you know, we'll ju- we'll just wait and see. Play it by ear. I will let you know. So keep an eye uh, on Twitter and all the usual spots, and uh, I'll, I'll give you the info as, as soon as I have it. So all that's left for me to do is uh, to thank you for listening. Have yourselves a great weekend. Let's keep fingers crossed uh, for the Burnley game. Let's hope that Tottenham and Manchester City uh, have a nice draw or a really violent, ugly, terrible draw once it's a draw. I'll catch you on the next one. Until then, <laughs> cheers, bye-bye. Twenty years, three league titles, two doubles, six FA Cups, one unbeaten season, and Robert Pires. Some amazing highs, some terrible lows, but you can't have one without the other. I mean, you could have a lot more of one than the other, but, but hey... Thanks, Arson.